0: This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to episode 57 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. As various Republican led legislatures around the nation either have passed or are planning to pass restrictive voting rights laws, and as Democrats in the Senate move forward with legislation that would overturn most of those restrictions, Many eyes are focused on the U.S. Supreme Court because sometime this month, the way it words its decision in an Arizona case could make it harder to challenge those restrictions down the road. It could even make moot any voting rights legislation the Democrats managed to get passed. As it is, the Democrats face an uphill battle in the Senate because Republicans are about to kill the bill the way they killed the January 6th commission bill last Friday. Besides, the clock is ticking on that effort because election experts say the Democrats have only until Labor Day to put election safeguards in place that will be in force for the 2022 elections. Unless they can pull it off by Labor Day the Democrats would be in a position to lose both houses of Congress next year because some of their voters won't be allowed to vote in many states. So the topic for this week is Voting Rights and What Jewish Law Has to Say. Seriously, Jewish law has much to say about voting rights and our own responsibility to register and vote. But first, some background, just in case you haven't been following this developing story in the news of late. Big issue with Republican legislators is that they failed in 2020 to take back the House and they lost control of the Senate. They also lost the White House. In normal times, the GOP would have looked at the results to see where they went wrong and then try to fix those problems before the next election cycle. They've done that in the past, as have the Democrats. 2020, however, was not a normal time. Donald Trump refused to concede the election, claiming instead that he actually won and that the election was stolen. A Reuters-Ipsos poll, taken in early May, showed what earlier polls since last November have shown. That 56% of Republicans believe the election was rigged in some way, and that 53% believe Trump actually won the election. More important, as far as voting rights are concerned, 87% of Republicans, 87% want new restrictions placed on who and how people may vote. It's that last finding that has emboldened Republican legislators to do just that, to make voting as hard as possible for the very groups that are not likely to vote Republican. Of course, most of these legislators know, even if their voters don't want to know, that election 2020 was among the most broad, free elections in U.S. history. Republican as well as Democratic officials in charge of elections in their states have said that. Both George's Republican governor and Republican secretary of state, for example, pushed back Trump's charges. Then there's the word of the man pundits like to call Trump's personal lawyer, former Attorney General William Barr. In December... He announced that the Justice Department he headed at the time had uncovered no evidence of widespread voter fraud, and certainly not the kind of fraud that could have changed the 2020 outcome. Fourteen days later, Barr was forced to resign as Attorney General, forcing him to leave office on December 23rd, which was less than a month before his term would have ended when the Biden administration took over. Iowa, Georgia, and Florida have already passed restrictive voting rights laws. Arizona, Ohio, and Michigan are poised to do so in coming weeks. Republicans in Michigan expect Governor Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat, to veto any such bill, so they also will try to put their proposed law on state statewide ballot. And then there is Texas, which already has some of the most restrictive election laws in the country. A bill that was before the Texas legislature, before it adjourned last week, would have put new restrictions on absentee voting, would have given partisan poll watchers broad new authority to block voters from voting, would have banned both drive-through voting and 24-hour voting, both of which accounted for a great many Democratic votes in Houston and its surrounding areas in 2020. And in an effort to intimidate local election officials, would have increased penalties for mistakes they might make. Democrats in the state House of Representatives thwarted passage of that bill by walking out before a vote could be taken, thereby denying that body the quorum needed to proceed. But Texas Governor Greg Abbott vows to call a special session of the legislature to restart the process. He also said he would veto a provision in the budget the legislature passed that provided money for the legislators' salaries. Talk about intimidation. In the end, all of the restrictive legislation in Texas and elsewhere will end up before the Supreme Court, as will any bill the Democrats in Congress manage to get into law, and that's a big if. How it will decide those cases will depend on the words the Supreme Court uses in deciding a case challenging two Arizona regulations that were struck down by the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. That lower court did so, It said, because of Arizona's, quote, long history of race-based discrimination against its American Indian, Hispanic, and African American citizens, and its pattern of discrimination, unquote. The two provisions, the Ninth Circuit said, violated the Voting Rights Act of 1965. While the Democratic National Committee, among others, have argued that the Supreme Court should allow the Ninth Circuit decision to stand, the Biden administration curiously told the court that the laws, while restrictive, nevertheless did not violate the 1965 law. The court likely will rule that way. The real issue, though, is what standard the high court sets out in its decision that would affect any future challenges that come before it, some of which have already found their way to lower courts. In the words of an American Civil Liberties Union attorney, the anticipated decision, quote, could have quite broad implications for the application of the Voting Rights Act in the future, unquote. And that brings us to what Jewish law has to say about voting rights. Supposedly, the first election, if you can call it that, happened in ancient Greece sometime around 508 BCE. The Greeks didn't vote for a candidate, they voted against a candidate. Actually, they voted to choose those officials they wanted sent into exile for the next 10 years. There's an idea. In reality, though, ancient Israel had long been holding elections of their own sort, going all the way back at least to its first monarch, King Saul, because such an election is what the Torah itself required. God didn't want Israel to have an earthly king, but he understood that they might want one nonetheless. So, as Moses tells Israel in Deuteronomy, If after you have entered the land that the Lord your God has given to you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, you decide, I will set a king over me, as do all the nations about me, then yes, you may set a king over you, one chosen by the Lord your God. But the king you place over you must be one of your own people, who are not permitted to set an alien over you, person who is not of your people. Unquote. In other words, God may choose his candidate, but the people must have the final say. As the Talmud quotes the sage Rabbi Yitzhak as saying, quote, one may only appoint a leader over a community, if the community approves of the appointment, unquote. To illustrate this, Rabbi Yitzchak relates a midrash about the appointment of the master builder who was to oversee the construction of the Mishkan, the desert tabernacle. In Exodus 35, we read that God tells Moses that a member of the tribe of Judah named Bitzalel was his choice to be the master builder. Rabbi Yitzchak expands on that conversation. Quote, The Holy One, blessed be he, said to Moses, Moses, is the appointment of Bitzalel suitable to you? Said Moses, Master of the universe, if you deem him suitable, then of course I do too. God said to him, Nevertheless, go and consult the people. Moses went and said to them, to Israel, is Bitzalel suitable to you? They said to him, if the Holy One, blessed be he, and you both deem him suitable, then surely we do too, unquote. A couple of hundred years go by, and Israel decides that it's time for them to have an earthly king. God chooses Saul for that role, just as he would later choose his successor, King David. In both instances, though, as the Tanakh, the Bible relates, God's choice had to be approved by the people. Saul's election was unanimous. It took David several years to gain the consent of all the tribes. The first contested election, so to speak, occurred when two of David's sons, Adonijah and Solomon, both sought the throne. That contest was won by Solomon. As one king reports it, quote, all the people then marched up behind him, playing on flutes and making merry till the earth was split open by the uproar, unquote. It was the Tanakh's exaggerated way of saying Solomon had the majority vote. When Solomon died, we're told, quote, all Israel had come to the city of Shechem unquote, to elect his son Rehoboam, Rehoboam, as their new king. That election didn't go well for Rahabam. The people tried to negotiate terms which he stubbornly wouldn't accept. So 10 of the 12 tribes broke away from the kingdom and elected Jeroboam, Rehoboam, as their king. So clearly, elections of a sort existed in ancient Israel, and the mandate for those elections was given by the Torah itself. But who has the right to vote? In most ancient societies, only landowners could vote. That was also the case in the United States in its early years. The Torah solved that problem for ancient Israel because it made everyone a landowner in perpetuity in most cases. Because if someone was forced to sell ancestral land, that land would revert to that person or family at the Jubilee year. And as the Torah makes clear, even women were entitled to own land. We live in different times, and elections have taken on a newer, supposedly more democratic shape. Universal suffrage is the ideal. One person, one vote is the rallying cry. Various Jewish laws taken together mandate that every adult citizen, male or female, of whatever race or ethnicity, Jew or non-Jew, should have the right to vote. The psalmist speaks of righteousness and justice, tzedek unique term first found in the book of Genesis in Sefer-Breshit. There, God tells us why he chose Abraham to found the nation that would become Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel. Quote, For I know him, that he will teach his posterity to do tzedakah umishpat, to do what is righteous and just. Doing tzedakah umishpat is the underpinning of the Jewish mission to the world. It requires us to fight for the rights of all people, whoever and whatever they may be. Here is how Rabbi Aharon Soloveitchik of Blessed Memory explained it in his book, Logic of the Heart, Logic of the Mind, Civil Rights, and the Dignity of Man. Quote, nishpat and Tzedek both emanate from the doctrine of human rights. In the realm of Nishpat and Tzedek, the notion of rights comes first and the notion of duties second. When one delves into the halakha, into Jewish law, one can readily see that the Torah does not make a distinction between Jews and non Jews within the realm of mishpat and tzedek. The Jew should always identify with the cause of defending the aggrieved, whosoever the aggrieved may be, just as the concept of tzedek is to be applied uniformly to all humans, regardless of race or creed. Unquote. There's more. A Mishnah in the Talmud seeks to explain why only one human was created by God on the sixth day. This serves, it says, to tell us no one person is exactly like another. Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik's brother, Rabbi Joseph Ber Soloveitchik of Blessed Memory, explains the relevance of this for us in his book Out of the Whirlwind. Quote Every person possesses something unique, making him or her irreplaceable and indispensable the inner worth of a one-timely, neatly, never-to-be-duplicated existence, which can and must serve God by self-involvement in the drama of redemption on all levels. This is Judaic humanism, or Judaic democracy, unquote. It follows, then, that all issues of social justice, all issues of umishpat, must be our concern, and that includes the right of all adult citizens to vote. And I do mean all adult citizens. Consider this. Ben Sion, Mayor Hai Uziel of Blessed Memory, was the Sfardi Chief Rabbi of British Mandatory Palestine from 1939 to 1948, and he held that post in the State of Israel from its founding in 1948 until his death in 1953. 1920, the year when the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified granting women here the right to vote. A similar debate was raging in mandatory Palestine whether women should be allowed to vote in elections held by the Yishuv, the Jewish settlement in the land of Israel. As he put it, quote, it is inconceivable that women should be denied this personal right. For in these elections we elevate leaders upon us and empower our representatives to speak in our name, to organize the matters of our Yishuv, and to levy taxes on our property. The women, whether directly or indirectly, accept the authority of these representatives and obey their public and national directives and laws. How then can one simultaneously pull the rope from both ends, lay upon them the duty to obey those elected by the people, but deny them the right to vote in the elections, mm-hmm. It follows then that it is just as inconceivable that we can simultaneously pull the rope from both ends by laying on anyone the duty to obey elected officials, yet denying that person the right to choose those officials. Make no mistake, the voting rights of everyone is our concern. Regardless of who they are, just as all other rights should be enjoyed by everyone is our concern. The Torah made that clear over and again, and our Prophets seconded it. Said Isaiah, quote, Learn to do good, devote yourselves to justice, and aid the wronged. unquote. The prophet Micah put it this way, quote, God has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, only to do justice and to love goodness and to walk modestly with your God, unquote. The psalmist, too, makes this point. In Psalms 15, he asks rhetorically, Who may live in God's tent? The first answer he gives is, quote, The one who lives without blame, who does what is right, and in his heart acknowledges the truth, unquote. And then there are the very pointed words of God, quoted by Jeremiah to the exiled Jews in Babylon, quote, Seek the welfare of the city to which I have exiled you, and pray to the Lord in its behalf, for in its prosperity you shall prosper, unquote. One way to seek the welfare of the city is to see to it that everyone has a share in that city, or state, or country. If anyone is denied the right to vote, everyone is denied that right. If an election is skewed to favor one party over another, such as by denying the supporters of one party to vote by restrictive laws, or by gerrymandering election districts to favor one party over another, then supporters of the other party are, in fact, disenfranchised. There's a principle that informs Jewish law that our sages of blessed memory took very seriously. The principle known as kivod habriot, protecting human dignity. As my moderns, the Rambam explained it, kivod habriot is not something to be taken lightly. All of us, Rambam says, quote, must be mindful of this because our main concern must be to solely enhance the glory of God. All who dishonor his Torah is himself dishonored by humankind. And there is no honor of the Torah but to do according to its laws and judgments. Finally, in 1984, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein wrote these words in a letter in which he cited yet another principle that plays a role in Jewish law, the principle of Hakarat HaTov, which Rabbi Feinstein called a fundamental principle of Judaism. The term means expressing gratitude for good that is done to us. Our sages also took Hakarat Hatov very seriously and said it applied to how we're to look at everyone in this world, whoever they may be. Rabbi Feinstein, in his letter, applied this principle to voting. Noting the freedoms that we the people enjoy here, he wrote, quote, the most fundamental responsibility incumbent on each individual is to register and to vote. By this, we can express our appreciation and contribute to the continued security of our community, unquote. There can be no security for any community that denies its people the right to register and to vote. It's that simple. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org, www.shammai.org And email me, please. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem and all of Israel, and pray for peace and brotherhood in all the world. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. And stay safe.